thank you for joining us today on the Mid-Atlantic Outdoors Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Bowman. I wanted to thank my friend, James Jordan Jr., for joining me today. Jim is the CEO and Executive Director of the Brandywine Red Clay Alliance in Unionville, Pennsylvania. Jim has tremendous experience in the conservation world, starting out in the for-profit sector, working at the National Vulcanized Fiber Company, or NVF for short. NVF turned into a very large corporation, which was founded in Yorkland, Delaware, where Jim grew up. His experience working for NVF helped him transition into the for-profit world, into the non-profit world. In this podcast, we only scratch the surface of Jim's experience and knowledge in the outdoor conservation world. We talk about his upbringing, schooling, first jobs, to his ex- and his successes working for NVF. He describes how he helps NVF save money while improving the local streams and river waters as well as the factory air emissions. He discusses working with the local and state governments to keep some of the most beautiful land in Delaware and southeastern Pennsylvania from being developed. Jim uses his experience to transition into the nonprofit world, where he eventually has become the executive director and CEO of the Brandywine Red Clay Alliance, or BRC for short. Jim describes the history of the organization, the many education programs, community involvement programs, conservation programs, and services the BRC offers. But before we start, there is one large event Jim and the BRC host every year. It's called the Red Clay Valley Cleanup. We didn't get a chance to dive into this event during the podcast, but I wanted to touch on it before we get started. This river, stream, and roadway trash cleanup is based in Hocassin, Delaware, just a few miles south of Unionville, Pennsylvania, where the BRC is headquartered. Jim and the BRC have been doing this great event for many years. And in March of 2023, the Red Clay Valley cleanup covered 98 miles of the Red Clay streams and roadways, both in Delaware and the 647 volunteers collected 10.3 tons of trash. Absolutely incredible. Now let's get this podcast started. All right. All right. Today, uh, today's podcast, we have Jim Jordan, the executive director and CEO of Brandywine Red Clay Alliance. Uh, we're in the Myrick Conservation Center, the headquarters for the BRC, and I uh, just want to welcome you, Jim, to the podcast, so thanks for coming on. Well, thank you, Eric. I'm, I'm looking forward to spending an hour or so with you guys and sharing what we do here. Yeah, that's great. This is a neat uh, conference room that we're in. Just, It's a great view of the, uh, the hill and the, the land here, and you've got some, uh, some raptors uh, and some ducks uh, different things uh, stuffed and taxidermy on the walls is, is pretty interesting. Yeah, uh, typically we have a lot more on the wall. Um, just completed teaching a young waterfowlers program on Sunday, so a lot of our, our waterfowl mounds got moved to the other side. Uh, so uh, 
probably the best thing what we try and showcase when we're uh, in our help wanted ads is that uh, you know it's a, it's a great place to come to work. You won't beat the the viewscape here. Yeah, it's beautiful uh, countryside and, and property that, that uh, you guys work at here, but. Um, all right, well, Jim, can you um, just tell us a little bit about yourself and um, some of the work you do at the BRC? Yeah, so, um, you know, uh, I, I've lived in the area my whole life. I actually lived in the state of Delaware, for specifically Yorkland, right on the banks of Red Clay Creek. Um, I moved all the way to Newark, Delaware to go to college. Uh, so it's, uh, my passion has always been outdoors. I started fishing probably about the time I could start walking uh, and started hunting when I was eight years old. And uh, my dad taught me that it's important to give back. Uh, so before conservation became a, a catchword, he kind of uh, understood that in a very generic country type of way. So uh, the ironic thing is my eighth grade science project was on the Red Clay Creek. And uh, really, That's project I never finished. I'm still, <laughs> still working, working on, on it. it. <laughs> I'm still working on it. So uh, That's pretty neat. Um, so the ironic thing is I, at the time I interviewed the, the environmental manager for NVF company in New York, Lynn, and I think it was uh, 11 years old later, I was sitting in his office. I had his job. So, uh, oh, get out. and I, I, I like to think uh, under my leadership there that we made a significant difference. Uh, environmental became not the only the cost of doing business, it's how we did business. So, really? uh, so and, and I think that work in the private sector really, uh, really helped me in, in uh, our success here at BRC. Um, yeah. No, that's great, and that's what I wanted to, to dive into, uh, for sure, how you came into this job and, and part of your career. Um, but um, let's back up a little bit. You said you grew up in Yorkland, so uh, where'd you go to high school, A.I. DuPont? Uh, I went to A.I. DuPont. Mm -hmm. um, and graduated from AI DuPont on Hillside Road. Uh, yep. Went to Yorkland Elementary School. Ended up years later, bought a house across the street from that, which is now the Center for Creative Arts. So, yep. lived in Yorkland my entire life. Uh, one house was uh, my first house. Uh, my, my parents lived there, of course. Uh, so I grew up hunting and fishing. Uh, not a lot of kids in Yorkland growing up, and Pretty so wide uh, open. I yeah. It was so. I mean, I uh, I spent my time exploring the outdoors with either BB gun or a twenty-two rifle or yeah. an instamatic camera or fishing rod. Uh, I knew it was dinner time when the factory whistle blew. Uh, so uh, that's that's how I uh, that was my opportunity, and uh, and that's where I fell in love with conservation uh, yeah. again with. Uh, you know, unlike, you know, not unlike a, a lot of other people, uh, I'm a hunter and fisherman, and one time I used to kind of hide that. Uh, wasn't in the 70s, that wasn't really popular, but yeah. and at some point you, you get comfortable in your own skin, and, uh, 
and I make no apologies for that. Mm -hmm. And programs we teach, we, we tell our students that too. Uh, some of our best leaders in conservation have been hunters and fishermen. They're mm -hmm. the ones that continue to open their wallets and checkbooks for it. Uh, and, and you know, when we look at our most storied conservationists, I know people that are anti-hunters, yeah. uh, and out of Liverpool is their, that's their idol. Yeah. Teddy Roosevelt, Audubon, uh, you know, uh, they, were they were all outdoorsmen. So yeah. uh, they were the leaders in the, in the conservation movement. But, but that's, you know, a lot of people get in this field uh, um, for a different reason. Mine was uh, just my passion for the outdoors, yeah. for the environment. And uh, my dad always told me, uh, you got to give back, and mm. probably took it a lot further than he expected. Probably, uh, yeah. Uh, but but um, that's that's what I wanted to, to do. That's great. So, that's great. So you went to the University of Delaware then? I did. I went to the University of Delaware. I majored in English. Uh, they didn't have a major in photography, so my uh, my idea was I wanted to be an outdoor writer. Oh yeah, uh, an outdoor writer and photographer. So that was my that's what my you were, like, goal, goal right? Yeah. And uh, that didn't pan out. I quickly realized that uh, everybody wanted to be an outdoor photographer <laughs> and be in Field and Stream and National Geographic and. Uh, and it just didn't pan out, so I made my living for a short time doing wedding photography. Did you? Yes. Oh. And then model photography. Wow. And then I booked one wedding that went for 11 hours. I said that's the last <laughs> wedding I booked, so uh, so um, so I stopped doing that commercially. It took me about five years to pick up a camera again. Uh, really? So you gotta be out. careful when you turn a hobby into a profession. And, and trust me, photographing models and weddings are not fun. No, uh, I can you know, I can bet. Brides yeah. can be fun. Brides' mothers, not so much. Uh, <laughs> now, um, you know, and, and you're working for a modeling studio and you know darn well that this modeling studio is just taking these girls' money and they're mm. not ever gonna make it as a no. model. Yeah. So it, it's, um, that's tough, yeah. tough to realize, yeah. Yeah, so I, a little bit of, um, I can relate a little bit. I had a company uh, for a long time restoring classic cars, and that was a big passion of mine when I was younger. My first car was an old 66 Mustang, you know, so I was like, this is great, and I was working and, and newly married and bought a car, and my dad and I, we have a, a garage, and we were like, all right, well, let's start restoring this. And then I found somebody wanted to help, and I hired him. And I'm like, wow, we could make this a company. So I made my hobby a business, and then I had all these customers that wanted all this stuff that I didn't want, like the the bride's mom that yeah. wanted these ugly wheels on a car. And I'm like, why are you doing this? And it just drove me to hate it. And, uh, and so I can definitely relate to you and your photography story yeah. there. But. Yeah, someday when I retire, I'm going to do a collage of ugly bridesmaids' gowns. So, um, you know, there, there, um, there's some of these bridesmaids' gowns. So. <laughs>
All right, well, that's got nothing to do with conservation, so we can maybe get back on track, but that's okay. We, we got all the time in the world. <laughs> but, um, so Yorkland is a really neat part of the world. It still is. It's really unique there. Um, and I guess like NVF was, was a huge part of it um, for a lot of years. Did your parents work for NVF? Is that why you lived yeah, down there? Yeah, actually, um, my dad worked for NVF. He was a third generation to work there. My great-grandfather wow. was actually hired by the Marshall family. Uh, he lived on the western shore of Maryland. He came up as a papermaker. Wow. He actually lived with the Marshall family, uh, and then they, uh, they built him a house. At that time, papermaking was half art and half science. The papermaker was kind of, that was a, the key position. So mm -hmm. I, I had no intention, uh, you know, in my photography work, uh, and that's when I started looking at conservation. So, uh, and I was going to the University of Delaware uh, for environmental science. I ended up getting a job there. My uh, dad said, hey, we're short softball players. They had a <laughs> universal salary. So I uh, oh, yeah. I went there and, um, you know. Uh, for the softball game. softball game. some of the people. Uh, ended up pitching and, um, and got sent in for a job interview, and I was intrigued. It was wastewater treatment, uh, and so that kind of fit in with my field, and, um, and it was kind of neat because we were switching to a, a biological system, so I was in the ground floor of that, where it's activated sludge where you actually use microorganisms, living organisms, to eat up the pollution. Wow. Uh, Considered state of the art now, it's just then it's still the way we treat wastewater today. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but that was uh, when what year was that about? That that was in the uh, late 70s, yeah. So, so that was like ahead of the time, yeah, big time. Right? So, uh, and then we had a you know, NVF was a, a polluter, the red clay, the yeah. first to admit that, yeah, not unlike any other company, uh, a lot of companies in the area. And not because they wanted to destroy our environment, but because they didn't know any better. Um, yeah. In the midst of an industrial revolution, and they were, uh, you know, packers were built next to streams because they needed the power, they needed a place to dump it. Uh, what I'm most proud of NVF is like, you know, the government can pass laws, regulations, but when you're the only fiber company in the United States, um, you got to figure out how to do it and stay in business. So that's what I think I brought to NVF was instead of looking at environmental as a cost of doing business, you, you give them lemons, you old cliche, but you give them lemons, you make lemonade. And um, we were able to eliminate our stream discharge by putting in a network of recycling systems. So we reduced our water usage by over 600,000 gallons a day. Mm -hmm. So we eliminated the stream discharge to the red clay, completely eliminated it. Wow. And then at the same time, we reduced our, by putting another recycling system so we could take water from one system, we reduced our, our water usage by 88%. Wow. So when you think of that, that's great for the environment. When you think that the company was paying $3 per thousand gallons to send it to the sewer, you look at the ROI on that. And 
Yeah, so, so, win, so win. that's a project you hang your hat on. And um, then another project was we had to uh, reduce our, our air emissions mm. by 14%, uh, which we could have done easily by putting low NOx burners. We were burning bunker fuel, number six grade fuel oil. And I'm like, well, let's look at this as an opportunity. Uh, yeah. The county was going to put a sewer line down the road, and it only two sides of a road, so it may one ditch you can put multiple lines in it. So it didn't make much headway with the county. So I went to the then governor Ruth Ann Minner. I said, you know, you you uh, you ran on a platform that the private and public sector have to work together to help us on this. So long story short. The county was putting two sewer lines through that uh, trench, and we have put one line in a ga natural gas line. We ran a natural gas line uh, from Hookessen to York Lynn, uh, paid one third of the project cost, so that saved the taxpayers a lot of money. We reduced our air emissions. By over ninety percent by burning natural gas by burning natural fuel. gas and the economy the, the 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 costs of natural gas versus fuel then at that time that moment it was much more cost effective so yep. you took a nine million dollar project and it had a return on investment of less than two years mm -hmm. the big thing is the thing I was most worried about. We had 150,000 gallons of number six grade oil stored on the banks of the Red Clay oh. within 30 yards of a tributary. It totally eliminated any chance of an oil spill. Yeah. Good return on investment for the company and um, a win-win for the neighbors and, and for the taxpayers. That's what I mean, to thinking out of the box. So. That's um, that's a great story. I didn't yeah. know that story. I mean, anytime a, a a business can make sense about doing something like that and saving money is, um, you know, is great. But then if you're also able to tie in the fact that you're helping out the environment and and yeah, hundred. I mean, that would never fly to a hundred fifty thousand gallon tank thirty yards from a stream like that. You know, yeah. these days it's it's just how business was yeah. done uh, for a long time up against all these tributaries and and things like that. So, so that's kind of what led me here. Um, part of my job was being an environmental manager at NVF. You not only had to do a good job, but you had to tell the public you were, what you were doing. Um, yeah. So I, I was really in charge of public relations, the good, the bad. Um, and started working with local nonprofits, the Delaware Nature Society, and um, and predecessor of BRC, the Red Clay Valley Association. So uh, I was a brainchild behind the Red Clay Valley cleanup, which I hope we talk about later. Yep. And um, and so working with these nonprofits, you know, I uh, started the Red Clay cleanup, and then member of the DNS executive director came to me and said, "Hey, will you?" teach a young waterfowlers program for us because yeah. Delaware Wildlife Federation was giving it up. And I was honest, I'm like, well, Mike, that's fine, but you know, uh, some of your members might not like hunting and um, they may be opposed to it. He goes, in his own words, uh, 
somewhat of a paraphrase, but not much as well. It's about time we come out of the closet on this. Wow. So it really brought brought the hunting and fishing to the forefront at DNS. So you, you walk in there five years later, you'd see a Cabela's catalog sitting there. One board member was opposed to it, rests in favor of it. I remember the first day I uh, went there, we were doing, the, they had their, uh, what was it called? Their Harvest Moon Festival. Oh, yeah. When they had it. And I remember this little old lady walked up to me and gave me a hug. She goes, oh, I'm just so happy to see this program. My husband was one of the founders of DNS. Um, and he felt that they had lost their roots and they became an anti-hunting yeah. organization. He was so disappointed in that. It sounds so she familiar. She was just so happy. Um, Good. So, so, uh, so part of my job was doing work with these organizations. Um, and that was, excuse me, that was while you were still working? I was still at NBF, yeah. So yeah. I was their environmental manager and agency liaison. So that's how you got to work with DNS's Delaware Nature Society. Yeah, so. And these different so, the red yeah. clay workers. So my primary work was at the Yorkland, the corporate headquarters in the Yorkland plant and the Newark plant. I also did special projects. Uh, usually, uh, sometimes I was called in after a mess was created. Oh. But uh, but I, uh, to our Kennett Square plants, I, I literally cleaned up and sold, uh, I led the effort to clean up and and sell a, a facility in Willow Grove, Pennsylvania that we owned, and also in, in Newark, Delaware, the now restaurant. Um, so uh, so there's some of it, but that, my primary work was in Yorkland. So the great thing is I got to work with water, yeah. uh, wastewater, uh, drinking water, and I was also uh, oversaw the NVF farm growing, and ironically, because right I grew there. up there, yeah. it's the land I grew up hunting and fishing on. <laughs> so they wanted to put me in charge of because they didn't want somebody in charge of the industry. They didn't want the vice president, didn't want it to become a dump site. Yeah. So I was put in charge of that. So that was a, the neat thing. Um, and then it gets really convoluted because BVA and RCVA, were, they were hiring a managing director here. But I was working on a deal. I was called into the president's office at NVF that the owner then, NVF, Victor Pauser, wanted to divest themselves of the farm. Mm. So I was put in charge of selling it. Oh. And... So I this walked, is a place that you really like love yeah. for your whole entire life. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and developers have been knocking on the oh, door yeah. every month. Um, you know, you got to realize your total. You're talking 400 acres in the Hokesson area. Beautiful uh, rolling Southern hills. Counties. Yeah. Um, so I went back to, and him and I had a good relationship. We we shot trap together, and we. Uh, so we were good, but he was still my balls, and I think he expected more out of me because we were friends. Yeah. So I went in, I said, you know what, give me a chance to preserve this and still get market value. I got kicked out of his office. <laughs> really? Um, yeah, so. It's like, you're crazy, that'll yeah. never happen. <clears throat> and so I went back a couple weeks later, got kicked out again, um, hmm. and then 
finally went back a third time, and, and I don't know if he, he didn't see um, my vision. He just was getting tired of me. Mm. And he finally said, I, I don't give a darn what you do. You got one year to do it, to get us market value or near market value. So I don't care how you do it, but you got 12 months. Okay. So that's when I started investigating how I could preserve that land. Conservation easements and, in different uh, ways. Yeah, so well, the conservation easement was an option. It had to be sold, and they didn't want it. They wanted yeah. the cash. And at the same time, Tom Marshall was getting older, and he was concerned about what to do with his land holdings, and they were, they were pretty, they were entwined a, a good bit. And the, so take me back, the Marshall family, they, they were the founding family They were the founding NVF. family of NVF. Yeah. So, and they didn't run the company anymore. They no, sold that's it. That's correct. It was a, a publicly held company. And then Victor Putt, it was on the, uh, on the I think, the Dow Jones. And then mm. when Victor Pauser, uh, who was pretty much a corporate raider, yeah. he took it um he took it private and, and used a lot of money. So NBF owned Arby's and, and RC Cola and, oh, and um, you know, a whole bunch of Luke and Steel. So, mm -hmm. uh, but, but I, I digress. So, but Tom Marshall had land and NVF had land. So I started, and this was when finances for open space preservation were not good. Yeah. So I was trying wrong. to research. Uh, who, how can we preserve this? And mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I worked with, the, looked at the county, looked at the state, talked to other conservation organizations. That, to be quite candid with you, thought maybe I had three heads. Okay. Uh, here's this kid with no money uh, that wants to preserve this land. But uh, yeah. but uh, I developed a unique relationship through young waterfowlers. Really? With Nathan Hayward, who was the Secretary of Transportation at the time. Um, we ended up, I knew I had a deal. It was, it was you know, 11 months. Uh, we closed on New Year's Eve. <laughs> but uh, I remember taking Ruth Ann Minner up, uh, and she was a flatlander. She grew up Downstate. in Sussex County. Uh, taking, I... I I had an Zuzu trooper. I remember taking it up. I predefined this area. It's not too far from kind of my backyard now. And um, I said, uh, Governor Minow, we have an opportunity to preserve everything you can see here. And she was just wowed by it. She was just wowed. Uh, you could see both sides of the Red Clay Creek, which both sides of Route 82, which is a scenic byway, and everything was undeveloped. What I didn't tell Ruth Ann was that uh, <laughs> part of what she was looking at was in Pennsylvania, uh, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> well, we got she, we got her excited about it. Yeah, that's what was I knew knew we had a deal when um, the guy I was dealing with at the state of Delaware told me that. Well, if we can get Tom Marshall to donate his land, we're going to buy NVF's land. And two days later, Tom, who's a lifelong friend, uh, you know, he was a friend. He gave me my first job as a teenager. Uh, yeah. He said, well, if the state agrees to buy NVF lands, 
their farmland, I, I will donate my land. Wow. So then I knew we had a deal. Yeah, and, we can um, do this. It was complex. Uh, had to bring other parties because uh, it was in two states. Uh, two states, two landowners, 11 parcels, uh, very complicated. complicated. Uh, and it worked and ended up uh, the Pennsylvania portion went to the Land Conservancy for Southern Chester County. Now it's back where it belongs. It's under the ownership and, and stewardship of Brandywine Red Clay Alliance. Oh, really? So, wow, that's great. Oh, so, um, and that kind of, you know, I had nothing to do with what they're doing with the buildings down there. Not a huge fan of some of the development that's happening down there, but I'm pleased that that land is preserved as Auburn State Park and yep. Marshall's Bridge Preserve. Yeah, that's a great, great story. Oh. Yeah, I didn't know all of that detail, but um, that's just wonderful um, experience for you, um, you know, as a, uh, so much a younger person by that time, but like uh, making your way from the private sector into the uh, conservation type world where you're in now and uh, just all those different kinds of deals from cleaning up properties and, and selling them for the company to, to putting together that complex deal with the with the state is um, is is really a, um, a reason why I can understand that you're in the position you're in now and the, it gives all the experience that you had um, that's a that's a great story, but um, we thought you were mentioning the um, the young waterfowlers program, and that's actually how you and I had come to meet. Um, I brought my son Brady um, to the class uh, when he was twelve or thirteen, uh, which was he's eighteen now, so a couple years ago. Um, Tell us, and you said, I thought you had started that program through Delaware Nature Society, but you did, You took it over. You well, said. we took it, no, I, we started it from scratch because the program had been dead for nine years. Oh, okay. So uh, DNS was then affiliate, the Delaware Wildlife Federation was an affiliate of the National Wildlife Federation, oh. and then DNS became that affiliate. So I think National Wildlife Federation, uh, oh. I own Colin O'Mara, yeah. uh, but before he was there, kind of planted that seed, and DNS didn't have the expertise to do it. No. So, uh, so I started from scratch. Never saw anything. Actually, uh, one of my duties at NVF too was I was in charge of the philanthropic giving. Mm. So I decided where our charity gifts went. So uh, NVF underwrote the cost of the whole program. Yeah. Um, Great. So. That went on for probably five or six years that way. And then I became president of Red Clay Valley Association um, and was on the board. And then this position opened at, at, uh, at BVA and RCVA. Same time I was closing this deal. So I'm like, I really like the nonprofit end of conservation and that's the direction I wanted to go. Yeah. Um, and so I accepted the job with one contingency, and that is I wanted to finish this land preservation deal yeah. at NVF. Yeah. So I stayed on at NVF for three months. 
Really, after accepting the position? Yeah. After accepting this position, he stayed on for three months to close that deal yeah. and then turned in my notice two weeks after the deal was closed that was sure that it was put to bed yeah. and the property was preserved in perpetuity. Wow, that's so, the right thing to do. So, so then I came here as managing director. Um, okay. My first job was, uh, I think, cleaning the bathrooms. So <laughs> second job was plowing snow. Uh, yep. Four years later, I was asked to become executive director. Um, and our, our current executive director became our watershed conservation director. Uh, something we needed to do. We needed to have uh, somebody working full-time on our watershed restoration efforts. And, and, I, and I think... I don't know, the, the board wanted me to be executive director. So uh, <laughs> Bob Schubel did great work uh, yep. for BRC, did even greater work as a watershed conservation director. So um, so going back, one, one thing we missed, so we've talked about okay. going to work. So how BVA, Brandywine Valley Association, was founded. Yeah. And we've talked about conservationists, Teddy Roosevelt, yeah. and and others. So in 1945, a group of business leaders from Westchester, Coatesville, and Wilmington, Delaware, Chick Laird, DuPont family, Air mm -hmm. was one of the leaders, uh, realized we're in the midst of an industrial revolution and we're going to have a lot of GIs coming back soon and and the stream was in horrible condition. It became a dumping ground. Agricultural fields are washing into it, industrial waste. Uh, and so in 1945, they founded Brandywine Valley Association. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal, but when you think about what was going on in this world in 1945, we're in the midst of World War II. Whole country, the whole world, and you had these guys focus on conservation and yeah, something the environment, before the environment was even a word. Uh, yeah, and it was a so, resource. It was, so, we needed the environment to win the war, yeah. you know. So BVA was founded, paid documents were sound, signed two weeks before the last German U-boat surrendered on the coast of Lowe's. So during the war? Wow, I was thinking that far ahead about the about the land and about what people are going to do when and they come back. The unique thing is, is people from two states, which is still BRC's mission. We don't recognize state and municipal boundaries. We work in Pennsylvania and Delaware and bring those groups together. So, and skip forward five years. Red Clay Valley Association was formed, another watershed organization. Let me add that BVA is considered the oldest small watershed organization in the country. They were the first, really? first small watershed organization wow. in the United States. Um, yeah. So five years later, that same model was used to form Red Clay Valley Association. The Red Clay, so the Brandywine uh, is much larger stream. Um, flows into the city of Wilmington, into the Delaware River. It flows out of the Coatesville, uh, Honeybrook area, and uh, three branches. Uh, 
red clay, it's much smaller. It starts at Longwood Gardens. Uh, one branch, the other branch starts at Unionville, flows down, but they, they, fund, they founded the Red Clay Valley Association. So together from 1950 to uh, 2015, they operate as two separate organizations. Mm -hmm. Two separate board of directors, uh, but with a very common goal. With a common goal, but one staff, mm -hmm. but two boards that didn't talk to each other. Oh, and um, and so you had two websites, two newsletters, uh, so much duplication, so many damn bank accounts that you couldn't <laughs> keep track of. I go to a funder, and I'd have my BVA hat on talking to Longwood Foundation, and I have to say, oh, well, excuse me, I have to talk to them about Red Clay, very challenging fundraising. Yeah. So I had to have the right people in place on both boards, so um, it, it was a challenge. Uh, people don't like change, but on uh, June 30th, 2015, BVA and RCBA merged to form Brandywine Red Clay Alliance. And you kind of spearheaded that? Yes. That, um, yeah, I spearheaded it. I had some good, strong board members behind mm -hmm. me. Uh, Lisa Brubaker was one of them. She was president of, uh, of Red Clay Valley Association. Jim Nolan was president of BVA. And actually, uh, I'm executive director, but I, I do, I report to the board, but I do have a role in selecting the board. So mm -hmm. something I wanted to do for a while, I just had to have the right players in place. Yeah, to make and, the uh, puzzle work together. Yeah, um, and, and it worked. And probably the single best thing we've done yeah. is helped with our marketing, avoided, uh, eliminated the confusion uh, of the two organizations, and, and made us more cost effective. Oh, uh, without a doubt. You know, uh, so. That was the start of the new BRC, and um, and then that was in 2015. So go to April 29th, 2023, and Brandywine Red Clay Alliance acquired the Land Conservancy for Southern Chester County, organization that had done a lot of land preservation mm -hmm. in Chester County. Uh, uh, Specifically, a good bit in Kennett Township. Mm -hmm. They were uh, they're struggling. They they were they had been through five executive directors or four executive directors in five years. Ooh. Uh, yeah. A lot of turnover on the board. So um, th they approached me oh. about this. So I a lot of people think we gobble them up. They approached us, help mm. us. Oh, good. Um, so at the time. We had a two-pronged mission, and um, and that was watershed conservation uh, and environmental education. If I can talk a minute about that, please. With watershed conservation—that's what we were founded on. Uh, unlike a lot of people, maybe we that, that talk the talk, and one study leads to another study, well, to another. We put boots in the ground, equipment in the stream, and we do the work. Yeah. We do the scientific study. Everything we do is based on science, but mm -hmm. if a stream needs a repairing buffer, we'll do a repairing buffer. 
It needs to be reconnected to the floodplain. We'll do that. We go through all the permitting process, which can take two years. Uh, first thing we do is a stream assessment uh, to identify why a stream is impaired. As soon as your program is red streams blue, no political uh, reflections there at all. It's what DEP and Citadel Denrec, if a stream is impaired, shows up on their map as red. If it's unimpaired, oh, okay. it's blue. I see what's um, yeah. So our goal is simple. Yeah, I can talk to you for an hour about the science. Oh, yeah. But what it comes down to is we want to have the red clay and brandy wine and all of its tributaries meet state water quality standards, Pennsylvania and Delaware. Really simple terms, that means drinkable. Really? Drinkable coming out of the tap, that it can be potable. That's the you goal. You have to go on through a treatment plant. Swimmable. Yeah. And fishable. Yeah. Drinkable, swimmable, fishable. All three. Oh, um, our other goal is uh, is such a disconnect between the outdoors and today's youth. Um, uh, uh, kids get outside only when there's a man with a striped man or woman with a striped shirt out there yelling fair or foul. Uh, they have a lot of competition uh, with electronic games, mm -hmm. iPhones, um, and kids are involved in so much sports they didn't grow up like I did wandering the fields or mm -hmm. like you did. Uh, so we try and reconnect those kids to nature. Uh, we do, before the pandemic, we were seeing over 13,000 school students a year. Pandemic threw us in a whirlwind. Uh, yeah. But we quickly, education staff are very fortunate, we quickly put together uh, virtual programs so we could still do those programs and we offered them at no charge when schools were really in need of something Oh. to do. So are you speaking about the summer programs that you do here at the BRC or do you guys do programs um, in some schools? Yeah, so we well? do we do school programs. So we have uh, oh. this brochure here is um, mm -hmm. is um, this is our environmental education program. So last year we saw over 10,000 school students in Pennsylvania and Delaware. Um, wow. Um, and we don't take the teacher's place. We complement now, all of our programs meet state standards, but not every teacher is comfortable with teaching outdoors. And so what we do is complement what they're doing in the school. So you'll see a host of programs all meet various state standards in Pennsylvania and Delaware. So we offer those programs here at the Myrick Center. Okay. Or at Walnut Hill or at our Sawbuck Farm. Or we do them as outreach. Some schools have... The facilities like Brandywine Spring School back up to Del Castle Park. Yeah, we can use the there. stream there. Mm -hmm. But so so last year we saw over ten thousand school students. That's wonderful. Uh, school programs are all about learning, and you hope they have fun along the way. Yeah, you want to open that door. Yeah, you want to pique that interest in the outdoors. Yeah, and then we do our summer camp. 
Yeah, this is what I like, Jim. And, you're, yeah. and you, uh, this is one thing you always tell me, and I use it as marketing, is yeah. like every day your kid is going to come home dirty. That's right. That's the one promise we make, <laughs> guaranteed to get wet and muddy every day. Which is fantastic. So there's no computers, cell phones aren't allowed. Um, so these kids may be canoeing one day. They may be fishing another day. They may be doing a scavenger hunt. What age kids do you do uh, mostly, just in the uh, this summertime program, what age is like 6 to 10 or 4? Four, four, to, 4 to 15. 4 to 15. Wow, that's so, great. So our largest camp setting is here at the Meyer Conservation Center. Mm -hmm. We see about 80% of our students uh, and um, or campers. We do a two, two different weeks of camp outside of Coatesville oh. at our Sawbuck Farm. And that's a full scholarship really? camp for the children in the Coatesville area. How many of these kids have never had their feet off the concrete? Yeah. These are the kids. City kids. Eric, it's easy to reach the middle class. Folks like you and I, we got to work a whole lot harder to reach the kids that need it the most because mm -hmm. there's just so many obstacles uh, to reach the, the most needed communities underserved communities so yeah. so we offer two weeks of summer camp full scholarship that's we wonderful. try and get sponsorships for that yep. uh, grants um, sometimes we have to eat we, we don't make any money and nobody makes money on education maybe yeah. Harvard they got a big endowment but <laughs> we don't make money on education <laughs> we try and cover our costs and, okay uh, our costs of the actual programs with uh, even with the summer camp programs we offer here, um, for every camp we offer, we keep two positions open for scholarships for children at need. Oh. And they're based on, does a child qualify for the National Lunch Program hmm. or not? Um, and then there's special circumstances. So not everything. God, I wish everything was black and white. Uh, Never is. I know the government thinks it is, but it's not. But you have a child that mother just got cancer, yeah. and and they're having a horrible time, or the father died unexpectedly, or yeah. you know, um, the family the, the in need. Father of Walter. So so you, you got to look at the check boxes, but then you also got to read what they write and. Um, and so that's what, uh, you know, and parents... So it's like an application process yeah, for families Yeah, it's an application process. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and most people, you know, most people apply or really need... Uh, I, I've had people apply for summer camp and make more money than I do. Obviously, they didn't get a scholarship. I don't know what planet they were. I don't make a lot of money, but I make enough that I don't need so a scholarship. Need a scholarship for so, and, and so we fund that. We have a scholarship endowment. It's not that large, but we also ask parents that are sending their kids uh, if they would like to contribute to the scholarship. Um, and then now, since we acquired Walnut Hill, and, and that's one of the driving forces for us to acquire uh, the Land Conservancy with Southern Chester County was we consider ourselves stewards of the red clay. We didn't own any land in the red clay. Hmm. Now we own a lot of land on the red clay and on its tributaries. But the vision was we had an opportunity to reach that community, those specific children. The people that lived in, in that Kenneth, watershed. Yeah, 
So in Kennett Square, Kennett, Kennett Square proper borough, mm -hmm. in Kennett Township, in New Garden, in Avondale. So, uh, so, and the thing is, we don't, we don't even keep records on uh, much of some of our funders. Just met. We we don't judge people by skin color. Had a lot of pressure maybe to do that. But what we want to do is, is reach those underserved communities there, give those kids, and some of them not underserved, they just don't have an opportunity because there's nothing close by, but we want to reach those kids in Avondale and New Garden mm -hmm. and Kennett, and we want to reach the, the Latino community, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and Kent School District has, has uh, 70 kids that go to Kent School District Guatemalan. Really? They don't speak English. No. They don't speak Spanish. They speak a derivative of Spanish. So, so they're the things we, that's what we want to do is, uh, and it's so important. So summer camp's all about having fun. Yeah. And you hope they learn something on the way. School program's all about learning. Mm. And you hope they have fun. Along summer the camp is all about having fun, but you want to open that door. Yeah. You want to open that door and get them interested in the outdoors. And at the end of the day, Eric, it doesn't matter whether they become a fisherman or a hunter mm -hmm. or canoeing, hiking is their hobby, but someday they're going to be where you and I are and they're going to be in a position to vote. Yeah. And, and history has proven time, time again. People fight to protect what they enjoy, mm -hmm. or at very least, what they understand. Mm -hmm. So that's why this is so. Work we do is so important. Uh, Richard Lou's book, No Child Left uh, Left uh, Indoors. It shows, uh, you know, it actually is documented uh, problem. It's called nature deficit disorder. Okay, kids are yeah. Indoors all the time. They're not outdoors. No. There's a lot. So to that's that. what we do. So, yeah. so summer camp is a blast here. We uh, yeah. we're canoeing. We're kayaking. We're taking different field trips. Uh, you know, uh, horseback riding on some days. Uh, fishing almost every day. Uh, wow. So we do a lot of awesome, uh, awesome things. And um, we teach a shooting stars camp, okay. which is kind of a kind of my a brief synopsis of my childhood. Yeah. They learn how to make a slingshot. Oh. Use a slingshot. Oh, okay. Then they, I thought you were talking about, you know, yeah. astronomy or something. Then yeah. they graduate to BB guns. Oh, okay. Yeah, this okay. is the Jim Jordan childhood yeah. uh, graduation and, program. And then <laughs> archery equipment. Oh, wow. And then 22 rifles. Yeah. And then an ancient Indian weapon, Aztec Indian weapon called an atlatl. Really? Which is spear throwing. Oh. Uh, we do tomahawk and knife throwing. This is focused uh, on the four-year-olds, right? Yeah, four-year-olds, four and under. <laughs> after it's a, uh, 11 to 15. 11 to 50 orcs. And That's then great. we graduate to 22 rifles. Yep. And then we do trap and skeet shooting. Really? And Wonderful. a lot of, about half the people are girls. Mm -hmm. Girls tend to be my best students because uh, boys, unfortunately, have this thing in their head. Uh, 
that, oh, I'm a boy, so I was naturally shot. gifted at all this. The girls actually pay attention. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it's fun. We have a top shot contest, yeah. an overall contest, and then for everybody walks, every child finds something they excel at. Yeah. And so some kid might be really good at shooting a BB gun. Some little girl might be able to put the tomahawk in the bullseye every time. The thing is, so they learn about the outdoors. We take hikes. Uh, uh, one day we spend canoeing. All the rest are shooting. But fundamental thing is these kids learn about guns. And these, yeah. this isn't a gun club teaching this. We're not a hook and bullet club. Right. We're a conservation organization, so a lot of these kids come with no background. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, if they get nothing else out of it, they get the understanding, gosh, what do I do if I'm in a friend's house and he pulls out his dad's handgun? Yeah, that's not What happened, you know? So, and the other things we teach and um, that if nothing else, what they get out of that is they understand how to handle a gun or a bow safely. Uh, Muzzle control, yeah. some basics. I mean, some parents are, are stupid. They, the 12-year-old wants a BB gun, so they buy him a BB gun. Mm, uh, show them how to send use him it. out. You know, so that's just one of the tiny things we teach. But we, you know, we have programs are uh, programmed around um, strings, and, and so each one will have uh, amphibians. Each one has a different theme. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, so we, we went on uh, camp registration open at 8.30 yesterday morning. February 1. Yeah. Really? And by 10 o'clock, 16 camps were already filled. Yeah, I've heard that about your camps. You sell them out so fast. Yeah. Oh. You can't do enough. And I mean, how many uh, college kids and, and, and people do you hire to yeah, run the so camps? Yeah, so we will hire about... 18 to 18 20 uh people a summer to do that so yeah. we'll hire two college interns then we hire camp counselors that are 18 and over and then our junior counselors uh, are uh, 16 to 18. Mm -hmm. all of our counselors are in college yeah. uh, and then usually for our younger kids we usually hire uh a teacher or child care specialist for that, yeah. for the fours and fives. Four or five-year-olds. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, so we, we do it, and we hire local kids. So we hire kids out of the, out of the local schools. So oh, that's um, good. But it's a lot to manage. I mean, the, the number of kids, and then you're hiring more people, and it's a it is it big is. undertaking uh, for you and your so staff. Somebody wants to know, well, how many staff do you have? Well, which month is it? Uh, <laughs> so. Right now we have a lot of teachers on the, uh, well we don't, so come next month we'll have a lot of teachers on payroll, part-time teachers who are teaching our school programs. Oh. So then our school programs are between March and, and June, Yeah. and then we go right into summer camp. Mm. It's a different group of people, different skill sets. So summer camp works as a summer, those people, and then school programs start right and back up again in September. Yeah. I can't even tell you how many people I have um, working for. Yeah, what, what week of the year is know, it? Uh, have, and, yeah, and then the other thing we do is stewardship. You know, we got a thousand acres that we own. 
thousand acres we own, uh, we got eight preserves, six that are open to the public, and we got another fourteen hundred acres under conservation easement. But you manage which the we easement. don't own it, but we uh, it's preserved in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. Got Abby Kessler, who's just a dynamo at uh, at land preservation. Uh, so. So that's what we do. So we manage the land, and that's probably one of the most challenging things is we're a very selfish race, us people. Um, everything's in it. What's about it? What's in it for me? Mm -hmm. And that's not how we manage our preserves. It's uh, we have to balance human use mm -hmm. and, and biodiversity, our own programs. So yeah. you've been to our point to point. Yeah. That has an impact on our biodiversity, our own education program. So that's what we have to balance. So it may mean closing a part of the preserve uh, during nesting season. Mm -hmm. Doesn't do me a darn bit of good to have a warm season grasses for nesting habitat if I have trails cut through it. Yeah. So we try and minimize that human impact, but still have it open to the public. And, um, and, and still be able to, to maintain the different habitats for mm. for uh, bobolinks and bluebirds and white-tailed deer and fox and all the other creatures, uh, warm season grasses that we have or pollinator gardens, uh, heavily planted with flowers, uh, native well, flowers. And your uh, sunflower seeds are pretty yes. like famous around here That's that right. we plant. Yeah, mm -hmm. so we have about eight to ten acres of sunflowers every year. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, they're harvested as a crop. The neat thing about that is 95% of the sunflowers we buy on the East Coast is grown in North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, and shipped here. Uh, oh, really? Or it's grown overseas here. Mm -hmm. uh, and we, so Jamie Hicks is our farmer. He's greatest conservation farmer. He's a great partner. Uh, so we use best management practices in the farming uh, to, to minimize, eliminate runoff and, and to do it in concert with conservation. Mm -hmm. uh, so the thing is he takes that seed and, uh, and he harvests it and he sells it. But we also take about 60 bags and give the key friends and it's on the bag is from our fields to your feeders um, yeah feed the birds so they understand that um and so that's what we do and and, and we don't do it alone eric um, we have a lot of partners you know um, that's important when it comes down to a lot of what we do it all comes down to education mm -hmm. educating landowners and Probably one of the projects I'm most proud of that we just did mm -hmm. was taking a four-generation farm that have 85 cows in the stream mm. for over 200 years. So I've developed a relationship with them over 10 years. And, um, he doesn't want to work with anybody but me. Uh, that's the downside. But such a great family. Um, convinced him to get his cows out of the stream. We, uh, we fence them out, we put crossings. I mean, they were doing their business in the Brandywine and 50 yards further down, people were trout fishing. Yeah. I go 10 miles down the stream and it's coming out of a tap in the city of Wilmington. Yeah. So there are things and it's like gaining that trust and 
now we're working on other conservation plans. I got them to, to put one whole farm. We got them to partnership with Pocopson Township, who funded a large portion of it. We got them to put a conservation easement on one entire farm that's mm -hmm. contiguous to us. So, wow. so you gain the trust. Uh, now that one cow farm, were you able to put in some riparian um, buffers and, and plant some trees yet? No, we weren't. Uh, we weren't. And, and some organizations would have walked away from that. Mm -hmm. That grass is that farmer's business. He doesn't, he's not a gentleman farmer. Mm -hmm. His four family members make a living off of that. So there wasn't, he doesn't have enough pasture land for us to put in a riparian buffer. Ideally, we'd love to see 50 feet or 35 feet. Yeah. If we put in a 35 foot buffer, Take it would put them out of business. Yeah. So some people might have said, you know what, we don't get 50 foot buffer, we're walking away. Yeah, but what a big and, win just to get the cows out of the stream. Oh, it is. Yeah. When you look at that nitrogen load in yeah. that stream, um, so sometimes you gotta, you gotta take what you can get. Yeah, be you flexible. Know, a very wealthy gentleman farmer who's keeping his land in agriculture for the tax break can give up a 50 or 75 foot buffer when you got a guy that's trying to scrape a living and he looks down and he goes, you see that grass? That's my livelihood. Yeah. So, but with that, we put a conservation plan, and he's been on one farm, a conservation plan on the other. We're working on them with his barnyards. We got his cows fenced out of the different wetland areas. So he trusts us now. He works yeah. with us. And, wow. You know, and, um, that's wonderful. So, um, so that's kind of, a neat thing. It's neat to be able to put those kinds of plans together over a long period of time mm -hmm. to see that kind of stuff uh, come to fruition. But I think we're coming up on an hour here, um, Jim, and I was just going to ask you, uh, you know, we've talked so much about all these different projects you've done and, and everything, and, you know, it's, uh, it's so great to catch up with you and, and talk to you. I think you know, we scratched the surface of things we could probably talk about for another couple hours and dive into things. So we'll, maybe we'll come back and do a part two of this. But just um, kind of in closing, what do you um, do? You have anything else you wanted to add? But or like, how do or maybe like a question like uh, younger people wanting to get into the conservation world? You know, coming out of college or with a um, ecology degree or something like what are some things that you would tell a younger person well I, I think there's a lot of opportunity in the conservation field mm -hmm. more now than when when I graduated from college um, a lot of different avenues you can go mm -hmm. uh, I've got land stewards that work for me they just absolutely and Every person we have here, uh, you know, is important. They're an important cog of the wheel. They love working on controlling invasives uh, and everything. Uh, so there's a lot of different aspects. So what I would recommend is uh, get involved with summer camp, like a BRC or a DNS. Visit different places. There's so many different ways you can get involved. Marine biology. Uh, marine biology or uh, or uh, wildlife you know one of our students uh, she got a, a master's degree in 
in waterfowl. Really? Oh, so, yeah. A graduate from our Young Waterfowlers program. Oh, even better. So, uh, Did she go through Chris Williams' um, uh, classes down at the University of Delaware? She got her, she got her undergraduate there, and then she went someplace else, mm -hmm. another college, who escapes me. And she called me up. She's like, she Jordan." She goes, "I thought you might be interested in this. I'm, I'm doing my, my thesis to this week. I, I would love for you to." To, to be there. Oh, so, uh, oh to go listen so, to a presenter yeah, thesis. Yeah. Oh, so, wow. So that's kind of, that's a neat thing. And, and that's about, people ask, why do I do this? Um, let's take, for example, young waterfowlers. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, tomorrow I'm going to have nine kids in duck blinds, never been in a blind before. They're going to have boots that probably don't fit them because they're mine or somebody else. But yeah. it's a 30-year program, and um, and some of the things that have come out of that, I told you one story. Mm -hmm. One kid graduated from college, and um, he's like, Mr. Jordan, I sure hope you can come to my college graduation because the young waterfowlers program has made a profound difference in my life and given my dad and I memories for share a lifetime. Oh, that's great. Last summer I got a call from a kid that was in the first Young Waterfowlers program. Nope. Really? The first program. Oh. He's married with his own children now. Yeah, yeah. Living in Virginia, uh, between Virginia and Kuwait. Uh, oh. And uh, he looked up my number and he said, I just want to tell you, Mr. Jordan, that and his parents always gave us a child had learning disabilities, and I think they gave young waterfowlers and myself much more credit. <laughs> but the program gave the kids something to struggle in school, gave him something he wanted to learn. Yeah. So all of a sudden, a kid that couldn't read wanted to read. Yeah. And, and so it opened that door, but he called me up. This man with his own children now, I just want to thank you. He goes, I'm in the Army, career Army now. Mm -hmm. I'm a lieutenant, and my job is to train bomb-sniffing dogs. Mm. And I would have never done this if it wasn't what I learned in Young Waterfowlers really? and what you talked to us about retriever training. <laughs> and now I'm training two labs, not to retrieve ducks, but... Sniff bombs. Uh, Wow. And then this one, this one, I'm going to read this one to you that, that I just got. Yeah. Um, May. It's an impactful class, and I went with it with my son, Brady, and, you know, well, I know he enjoyed it, and, and, and I did, too, just, you know, as a, as a hunter just going back and, and relearning some things, and, but... The way you, you present these uh, these classes and these items to kids, you know, I think it's really, obviously, it's very impactful. And, and I think a lot of them, as younger people, may not uh, kind of, at the time, soak it all in. But then, they, like, these stories you're telling now, it's, you, you look back and you're like, wow, that was, that was really something I was able to do, you know, and. This is just true. This is so relevant to what we're talking about. I, I really want to 
find this for you. Yeah, um, no, take your time. Because you will, why won't you, because you know this young man. Um, you know this young man, and you will be able to relate to it. I got a text from uh, one of um, the other fathers from the Young Waterfowlers program, um, Dave List, the other day. Okay. And uh, he was saying that his son is coming back as a college yeah. student and helping out with you. And I thought that was uh, that was pretty neat because I always remember his son being a really heck of a shot. And Dave was saying he's at University of Delaware and uh, he's on the trap and skeet team. And, and, and doing real well. So you still keep in touch with Dave? Not particularly. I think I haven't even responded to his text yet, <laughs> For, to be perfectly honest, but um, fond memories. Yeah, so I'm not, I, I'm not finding this, unfortunately, but it's actually from Jeff Liss. And, um, oh, so we're talking about yeah, the same Yeah, so you're yeah. talking about the same person. Something in those eloquent text messages Mr. Jordan, I just want you to know that my dad and I would never be where we are today if it wasn't for the Young Waterfowlers program because we didn't come from a hunting family. I had this interest in hunting. Yep. So my dad and I came and we learned it together. Yeah. And then what we learned at Young Waterfowlers, we put into play in the field. Mm -hmm. First time I ever shot a shotgun was when you were standing next to me. Hmm. Now that young Jeff Liss, he's uh, he's captain of the clay target team for the University of Delaware and traveling across the nation representing the UD. Yeah, it's uh, amazing. So he's graduated from that, that youth shotgun mm -hmm. to a very high dollar shotgun, tremendous shot, but, and um, so, uh, He's leading the, the team and he's like, notice what happened. So that's what you want to do. And, yeah. and I guess just in closing, people want to know, well, how do you make a difference in the conservation world? You make it one kid, one person at yeah. a time. That's a good way uh, to look at it. And that's it. Everybody's in the numbers, how many contacts. And the thing is you, you make it one contact at a time and you don't, may not be one meeting, uh, farmer I was talking about, yeah. ten developed years. that relationship in 10 years. This land deal I'm working on that looks like it might blow up in my face. Mm -hmm. um, I've been working on that nonstop for 18 months, but there, there are the things that you um, you do. And I, I guess uh, I love my job. There's more of it than I like at times, <laughs> but uh, I go home and, and uh, bottom line is, have you made a difference and no difference? And uh, I like to think that you know that's my goal is to make a difference every day, and I'm I'm really I'm fortunate to work with a really good staff, and have an incredible board of directors. Um, uh, I have a great board of directors. One of my young waterfowl students, uh, Brent Dupont, is a board president. So there's a, a role reversal. Big there. guy in charge so now. So he was my kid. He's now my my boss. Your boss, uh, yeah. The funny thing is, he still calls me Mr. Jordan. Yeah, he and does. Yeah. One of the board members criticized him for that, and he goes, 
it should be calling you Mr. Dupont. He goes, he will always be Mr. Jordan to me. But yeah. that's uh, Brent's grown up to be a fine man and He's really involved in the in the conservation field. He um, is. Yeah. No, that's great. Well, Jim, thanks so much for your stories and joining us on this fancy podcast that we're starting off here, episode number one. Um, so thanks so much, and um, this is really great. We'll have to come back and do it again. No, thank you, and thanks for uh, thanks for helping to spread the conservation story, not only about BRC, but but uh, but what we're doing and what needs to be done. So, yeah. truly appreciated. Great. Thanks again. We'll see you next time. So. Okay, well, that's a wrap, everybody. Thanks for listening. Do me a favor. Uh, give this episode a like and share it with a couple of your friends. That helps Spotify and Apple uh, promote this thing a little bit and uh, help me grow and get the word out there. So thank you very much. See you next time.